Hey there, it's Emily Karp, one of the members of the ENT in a Nutshell team, here to update you on a new resource we have available on headmere.com. We now have transcriptions of each of the podcasts for enhanced accessibility and studying resources. Watch out for podcast study outlines coming soon as well. Thanks, and now on to the episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. I will be your host. My name is Linda Yin, and I am fortunate enough today to be joined by three expert guests. Our first guest is Dr. Eric Moore, who is a head and neck surgeon. Dr. Moore, thank you for being here. Thanks, Linda. It's a pleasure to participate in this. And we also have Dr. Daniel Ma, who is a radiation oncologist that specializes in head and neck cancers. Dr. Ma, thanks for being here as well. Very happy to be here as well, Linda. And finally, we have Dr. Catherine Price, who is a medical oncologist, also specializing in head and neck. Dr. Price, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Today, we're going to be talking about oropharyngeal squamous carcinoma, which is one of the most common pathologies that we see in the head and neck cancer clinic. Although we're not going to discuss specifics of radiation therapy and chemotherapy, you know, you can find those episodes on this podcast titled Principles of Chemotherapy and Principles of Radiotherapy. But we will go into how these therapies are applied specifically for oropharyngeal cancer. Let's start off, as we always do, with the presentation. So, Dr. Moore, what is the typical presentation of a patient who is coming in with a new oropharyngeal cancer? Well, Dr. Yen, one of the most surprising things about oropharyngeal cancer is how little symptomatology the patients may have uh, upon presentation. The most common presenting symptom that a patient with oropharyngeal cancer has is a mass in the lateral upper neck or in the jugular digastric area of the neck. And many times they may have no other symptoms besides that mass. And many times that mass may have been present for a surprisingly long period of time before the patient presents to the physician for evaluation. The majority of patients with oropharyngeal cancer have regional metastasis to their lymph nodes in their neck, or at least a lymph node in the neck at the time of their presentation. So the most common presenting symptom is a mass in the lateral neck. The symptoms can be very important, though, in helping guide you uh, to the extent of disease and the location of the primary tumor. So some patients may present with a sore throat or a feeling of a foreign body in their throat. They may present with some discomfort upon swallowing on one side of their throat. And they may present even in the cases of advanced cancer with some bleeding or ulceration in their throat that they noticed, or even trismus or difficulty opening the mouth if the cancer is significantly advanced at the time. So some series report as high as two-thirds of the patients presenting with no other symptoms outside of an asymptomatic neck mass, but many patients may also have some feeling of sore throat or foreign body in their throat. Otalgia, or pain in the ear, is also a commonly reported symptom in patients with advanced cancer, and the otalgia is from referred pain from the oropharynx, possibly along the glossopharyngeal nerve, and is a sign of a tumor that's either deeply endophytic or advanced uh, upon presentation. We talked about trismus if the tumor invades the, the medial pterygoid muscle and causing some difficulty opening the jaw. Finally, patients may have a neglected tumor that's very advanced and they present with some other findings such as velopharyngeal insufficiency or hypernasal voice or fluid getting up into the back of their nose when they swallow if they have any palatal involvement of their tumor. 
or they may present with tumor invading outside of the oropharynx into the mandible and an ulcerated mass in the retromolar trigome. But most patients have a small primary and relatively advanced regional nodal disease and present with that mass in the neck. What type of physical exam maneuvers do you perform in the office when you're evaluating a patient that you're suspecting might have an oral pharyngeal cancer? After you've taken the history and you're getting onto the physical examination, you want to pay some attention to the, the mass in the neck or do they have a presence of a mass in the neck? We do a thorough neck examination with palpation of the lateral area of the neck, palpation of the submental area. We want to get some appreciation for the size of the lymph node, and we also very importantly want to get some appreciation for the mobility of the lymph node. So we see if we can move that lymph node around the neck, or is it relatively fixed in, into position. Fixation can be a sign that the that the lymph node has extranodal extension and there's involvement of the sternocleidomastoid muscle adjacent to the lymph node. It may give you some idea that the lymph node is involving the surrounding structures, such as the internal jugular vein or the carotid artery, which is making it less mobile. And finally, the lymph node can involve the uh, deep cervical fascia and become hypomobile that way. And that's a, that's a signal to you that there may be some extranodal extension of disease or that there may be some difficulty in mobilization of that lymph node during the the neck dissection part, if that's part of the treatment. And then after that, we want to pay attention to the location of the primary tumor. Oropharyngeal cancer can present with very occult or small primary tumors, as we mentioned. And, and so getting an idea of, is there a primary tumor present uh, during the physical examination is very important. The first part of that physical examination just involves visualization. So having the patient open their mouth and with a, with a headlight or, or a light source, visually evaluating the anterior tonsillar pillar the soft palate, the tonsillar fossa, the tongue, the rest of the oral cavity. And then one of the most important parts of the examination for oropharyngeal tumors is palpation. And so by palpation, we're trying to get some appreciation. Is there any induration or firmness of the tonsil or the lingual tonsil at the back of the tongue? And many times occult tumors can become manifest by palpation where you'll feel them even if they're not visible. And finally, the last portion of palpation that's very important is that oropharyngeal tiny primary tumors can be friable. And so when we do palpation and, and and sort of vigorously palpate the tonsillar fossa and back of the tongue, we explain to the patient that this may be uncomfortable, that it may elicit a gag reflex, but there's a really important purpose to it. And that's that if we see any bleeding at the site of palpation, that's an abnormal thing. If I palpate a normal tonsil, it usually will not bleed. But if I palpate a tiny tumor in the tonsil and elicit bleeding, that can guide me to where the primary tumor might be. After we've done our visual examination, after we've done palpation, after we've assessed for friability, after we've evaluated the neck examination, then we do a flexible laryngoscopic examination in the office. We pass a flexible nasopharyngoscope in behind the palate through the nose and look at the tonsillar fossa and look at the tongue base. We ask the patients to protrude their tongue, to move it to the left and right. And what we're really trying to do in these situations is gain appreciation. Is there a small occult primary tumor at the base of the tonsil or in the glossotonsillar sulcus? Most unknown primary tumors that are not large in the oropharynx will be in this region. And sometimes you can pick this up on nasopharyngoscopy. My next question is for Dr. Price. So what is the epidemiology of this disease, particularly in the United States? 
So the incidence of oropharyngeal cancer has been on the rise in the United States and also across the world for the past several decades. This is driven by the human papillomavirus, which we know to cause over 80% of all oropharyngeal cancers. Conversely, however, HPV-negative oropharyngeal cancer has steadily declined as we see less patients who are smoking. It is thought that the changes in the um, incidence of oropharyngeal cancer related to human papillomavirus date back to changes in sexual practices uh, starting in approximately the 1970s. So oropharyngeal cancer is now quite common. It is eight times more common in men than women. And in fact, it's currently the eighth most common cancer in men in the United States. And it has surpassed incidence of cervical cancer in women. Unfortunately, despite these rising trends and what uh, we see as an epidemic of this disease, public awareness of the link between HPV and oropharyngeal cancer is quite low. Dr. Ma, Dr. Price already sort of started getting into this, but what are some of the risk factors for getting this type of cancer? Sure. Thank you, Dr. Yen. So like Dr. Price was saying, traditionally, head and neck cancers have been associated with the standard risk factors uh, that we see on sites outside of the oral pharynx. This would include uh, use of tobacco, uh, use of alcohol, and this still applies to our HPV unassociated oral pharyngeal carcinomas. Thanks to our partners in public health, the incidence of tobacco use has been steadily declining throughout the United States, and our rates of tobacco and alcohol-related head and neck cancers have also been steadily decreasing. But our rates of oral pharynx cancer continue to climb, and it is because of this HPV-positive population. It's now estimated that the majority of head and neck cancer patients seen in ENT clinics and in cancer clinics in general are related to oral pharynx cancer and specifically to HPV. So when you get your typical HPV-associated oral pharyngeal cancer patient, this does mean that the demographics of your patient population does change. The majority of these patients now tend to be healthier. They tend to be middle-aged Caucasian men. Uh, they tend to have fewer health issues on the get-go because of a lower incidence of tobacco usage. And uh, although the average age of diagnosis of HPV-associated oral pharynx cancer um, tends to be lower than that of HPV-unassociated cancers, it is on the rise. As Dr. Price said, the changes in practices that led to the current HPV epidemic has been back in the 1970s. So that general age is starting to rise as well. Women can get the disease as well, uh, even though the, the proportion tends to favor men. It's thought that women may have protective effects from coexisting HPV exposures elsewhere. So there may be immunologic factors to why there's a difference between male and female incidences of HPV-associated uh, oral pharyngeal cancer. Uh, it's very interesting for men Risk factors such as number of sexual partners, number of oral sexual partners, these are items that increase your risk for oral pharyngeal HPV-related cancers. But for women, after a certain point, increasing partners is actually protective. And again, it's thought to be because of this cross-effect of immunity. Okay, back to Dr. Moore. So when you see a patient with a neck mass or a primary lesion, and now you're suspicious for oropharyngeal squamous cell cancer, but you haven't made a pathologic diagnosis yet, what else is remaining on your differential diagnosis? 
Well, it depends on if we're talking about the the neck mass or the primary tumor appearance. So for neck mass, we have to uh, include all the things that may present as a neck mass in an adult patient. So we have to be thinking of uh, lymphoproliferative things like lymphoma. We have to be thinking of benign lymphadenopathy uh, and lymphadenitis metastatic tumors from other sources besides the oropharynx to the neck, so skin primaries, oral cavity primaries, hypopharyngeal primaries can all potentially present as an occult uh, primary but a metastatic uh, lesion to the neck. But one of the most common things that's confused with a neck mass uh, from an oropharyngeal squamous cell metastasis in an adult patient is the brachial cleft cyst. So oropharyngeal carcinomas have this very interesting presentation of cystic neck metastases. And many times these cystic neck metastases will feel and look quite benign on imaging. And the differential diagnosis will be, is this a cystic neck metastasis or is it a brachial cleft cyst? I point this out because probably one of the biggest pitfalls we see is misdiagnosing the cystic neck metastasis as a benign brachial cleft cyst and giving the patient the advice that it's not significant or it's not urgent or doesn't require further treatment. And when we get into diagnosis, this can even be a conundrum when we're talking about how to, how to biopsy these lesions. For the primary site, um, they, uh, things that might be con, uh, included in the differential diagnosis or, or confused with a primary site tonsil or tongue-based malignancy would be other things besides carcinoma. So lymphoma can present as a unilateral tonsillar mass, even ulcerated sometimes, or a tongue-based mass and, and masquerade as a primary squamous cell carcinoma of the tongue base. And then some patients just have asymmetric tissue in, in their tonsillar fossa. So, so a predominant asymmetric tonsil on one side uh, isn't necessarily malignant and maybe just a normal variant uh, of anatomy. And then finally, there are other uh, tonsil lesions that are not carcinomatous. So, so tonsillitis uh, and low-grade inflammation can present as an asymmetric tonsillar mass. Um, minor salivary gland tumors in the tonsillar fossa can present as an asymmetric tonsillar mass. Let's move on to pathophysiology now. So we already said that the majority of these oropharyngeal cancers are now caused by the human papillomavirus. Dr. Price, what is HPV? HPV, as mentioned, stands for human papillomavirus. So this is a double-stranded DNA virus that causes asymptomatic infections in humans, and it is ubiquitous. So by the time um, people reach their 20s, 30s, almost all adults have been exposed to HPV. Papillomaviruses are, are extremely common, and there's many different subtypes. So there are low-risk subtypes that can cause benign conditions like skin warts, and high-risk types that can cause malignancy, such as oropharyngeal cancer, cervical cancer, and anal cancer. Um, for oropharyngeal cancer, the vast majority are, are caused by the um, HPV-16 uh, strain. And as was previously mentioned, HPV is a sexually transmitted um, virus. It can be transmitted in other uh, situations, but the vast majority will be related to sexual activity, um, including genital-genital, oral-genital, and oral-oral. So deep kissing has been shown to lead to transmission. 
As I mentioned, most adults will be exposed to this virus as they become sexually active, and the vast majority of people will clear that infection. So if you test people a year later, most of them have already cleared the virus from their system. But a small minority of uh, people will become chronic carriers of the HPV virus, and it's that group of people that are at risk to develop a malignancy related to HPV. Dr. Mala, how does HPV infect the tissues of the oropharynx? Like Dr. Price was saying, uh, when we think about the oropharynx as an anatomic subsite, we include areas such as the soft palate and the posterior pharyngeal wall. But when we actually look at HPV-associated tumors, they're overwhelmingly within the lymphoid tissues of the oropharynx, and this would include the tonsils and the base of tongue. So the surfaces of the epithelia, of the mucosa, of the, these areas are, are lymphatic in nature. Uh, the palatine and lingual tonsils have deep crypts in their epithelium, and this epithelium is reticulated, meaning it's broken up with gaps. Uh, this is very important from an immunologic standpoint as it allows for immune capture and capture of antigens, mobilizing an immune response. It also means that this broken basement layer uh, allows for development of cancers in this area to rapidly go into the lymph nodes, which is why we see this phenomenon of relatively small primary tumors being associated with much larger lymph nodes. Going back to the, the, the carcinogenesis of these tumors, HPV uh, has two oncogenes, E6 and E7, which have downstream effects. Uh, both in suppressing P53 and also in upregulating the survival and the oncogenesis of the host cell. P16 is a downstream marker that is upregulated by E7 expression and is thus an excellent biologic marker for HPV oral pharyngeal cancer as well. Dr. Ma, Dr. Price mentioned HPV16 and high-risk HPV. What is low-risk and high-risk HPV mean? What is that alluding to? So high-risk HPV tends to be HPV 16 and 18, while low-risk is HPV 6 and 11. 6 and 11 tends to be associated with kind of more warty diseases, laryngeal papillomatosis, and genital warts. High-risk HPV 16 and 18 are often seen in oral pharynx cancers, anal cancers, and cervical cancers. There tends to be more of a diversity of HPV, particularly with 18, with cervical cancers and anal cancers as well. Uh, when we looked at our cohort at Mayo Clinic, for example, and this has been validated in other institutions, greater than 90% of our HPV strains associated with oral pharyngeal cancers have been HPV-16. Dr. Moore, Dr. Price mentioned that most adults are exposed to HPV as a virus by the time they are sexually active. But why do we know this as a disease more of middle-aged men? Why don't we see men in their 20s getting this disease after becoming sexually active? This is both a fascinating phenomena and a commonly asked question of the patient uh, who finds out that they have a carcinoma that's related to human papillomavirus as a sexually transmitted disease. And the, the common thinking is that there's a long lag time between when patients are initially exposed to the disease and when they develop an, a, a, an acute affection and when the cancer presents. And this lag time may be several decades long. 
What's going on here is that the patient is probably developing either a chronic uh, low-grade infection in their oropharyngeal tissue and a localized infection, or even a late infection in the deep crypts of the tonsillar epithelium, and then possibly becomes reactivated at some point in the life and integrates into the host genome, or maybe persists as a chronic low-grade infection before the actual process of carcinogenesis is initiated. The practical phenomena that's occurring is that the patient has had the infection or the exposure for some time, and it may be several decades before they actually develop the overt carcinoma. What this leads to is a whole bunch of questions on the patient's part about when did I get this? What's my uh, infectivity of, of other people? Uh, how contagious am I? And should I change my sexual practices? The answers we give to people is that this exposure likely occurred decades ago. It may or may not have been with your current partner. Your current partner has been exposed to the infection from you and likely has developed uh, eradication of the infection and immunity, uh, and that the transmission likely has occurred between long-term partners uh, over and over again, and is not likely to result in a cancer in your partner. Not impossible, but not likely statistically. And so patients should not necessarily change their current partner sexual practices um, because of this long-term exposure. Let's talk a bit about our workup now for a new oropharyngeal cancer. Dr. Moore, in a patient that you've just diagnosed with an oropharyngeal cancer or you're suspecting of having an oropharyngeal cancer, what is the best imaging modality to obtain as part of your initial workup? We have a lot of different imaging modalities at our disposal, and the question of what is the best may differ a little bit in different people's minds, but my favorite uh, imaging study is something that is quick to acquire, does not require a lot of cooperation on the patient's part, and can give me a very good anatomical depiction of the primary site and the regional lymphatic basin. So my initial uh, imaging study, if I could pick one, would be a CT scan of the neck with contrast. If done well, the CT scan of the neck requires very little time for the patient to have to lie still, so very little cooperation on their part. Is a readily, easily acquired examination, is readily available in most medical centers, and gives you all that important information as far as how many lymph nodes look abnormal by size. Are they cystic or solid? What is their relationship to the surrounding structures and the great vessels in the neck and the sternocleidomastoid muscle and the deep cervical fascia? the skull base and the mandible. What does the primary site look like? Is there tonsillar asymmetry? Is there tongue base asymmetry? A good CT scan can give you all that information quite readily in one examination, and I think, I think wins hands down because of that reason. There are other scans that you may want to utilize. Um, MRI scan also gives you very good anatomic detail, but MRI scan uh, doesn't have those other factors in that it, it can require the patient to lie cooperatively still, and this may be very difficult for some patients. They have to lie sometimes in a smaller uh, donut environment, and so it can be anxiety-provoking and difficult for patients with claustrophobia. It's more expensive, and it may not be as readily available in all areas. Ultrasound is probably the most commonly employed imaging study in the neck. 
particularly by non-head and neck providers, and maybe even by head and neck providers. And ultrasound can answer those questions. Is there lymphadenopathy? Is it solid or cystic? Ultrasound can be very useful for image-guided biopsies, but it doesn't give you the degree of anatomic detail, I think, that a CT scan does, particularly of the primary site environment. Dr. Ma, you talked about the different um, sites of lymphoid-associated tissue, uh, mucosa, in the back of the throat. What are all the possible subsites to develop a primary lesion or oropharyngeal cancer? And what is sort of the breakdown? What's the most common? Um, and where do you look for unknown primaries? So base of tongue is uh, the most common, followed by tonsil. And these, again, are the areas with lymphoid-associated tissue for HPV infection. Base of the tongue and tonsil join at an area known as the glossotonsillar sulcus. This area can sometimes be difficult to examine clinically and often is the source of unknown primaries. There are other areas within subsites of the oral pharynx, the soft palate, the posterior pharyngeal wall, but uh, these areas may have separate processes and it's somewhat unclear if they completely behave similar to our base of tongue and tonsil squamous cell carcinomas. Okay, so say we've located a suspicious primary lesion and we've gotten a CT scan and we see a lateral cystic neck lymph node and our suspicion at this point for oropharyngeal cancer is very high. Dr. Moore, what's your next step to get a pathologic diagnosis at this point? Linda, with with pathologic diagnosis, uh, there are so many factors at play. We want to get a diagnosis that's that's accurate. We want to ask the pathologist some specific questions about that tissue. We want to know, in this case, is that cystic lymph node uh, a metastatic carcinoma? So we want to get histopathology. And we want to know, is it related to HPV? Is it P16 uh, positive on immunohistochemistry? Because that's really going to help us with both uh, uh, counseling the patient regarding where the tumor came from and where the primary site is and what options do we have at our disposal for treatment. And finally, we want that diagnosis to be uh, easy to obtain. We want it to be minimally invasive and as uncomfortable as possible for the patient. We want it to be cost-effective and we want to use as little resources as possible. And finally, we want to, to not influence treatment going forward. So we don't want it to burn bridges or, or make some treatment modalities more difficult uh, now because of how we've obtained the biopsy. So if the patient is presenting with a lateral neck mass, far and away, I think the, the the diagnostic test that answers all those questions and jumps all those hurdles is a image-guided fine needle aspiration biopsy of the neck. Image-guided because the cystic lymph node can be particularly vexing to get an accurate tissue sample from. We don't want the fluid in the center of that lymph node that's just full of necrotic cells and debris because it's really, it's not going to give us an accurate diagnosis. We want to biopsy the wall of that lymph node, and image guidance can really improve, I think, the sensitivity of that biopsy by helping guide the needle into the diagnostic area of that lymph node rather than having it just end up in the central non diagnostic soup. If the patient doesn't have a uh, lymph node in their neck to biopsy, then we favor going after the primary site. But we don't really want to remove the entire primary site for our 
biopsy alone because that can create some problems going forward with definitive treatment of the primary site. So we, we advocate for for an incisional or partial biopsy of the tonsillar fossa uh, or the or the base of tongue, and not a complete tonsillectomy for biopsy, because that then helps it makes it more difficult to determine the the peripheral extent, the margin, the edge of that tumor. So ultrasound guided fine needle aspiration biopsy of the lymph node or biopsy of the primary site, potentially in the office with an incisional or partial biopsy. Um, rather than than an excisional biopsy. There is a concept in the past of performing sort of panendoscopy with random biopsies of the whole aerodigestive tract, which I think has really fallen out of favor now that we've been able to cone down on the primary site, knowing it's P16 positive, uh, and cone down on the primary site with imaging studies. So we don't recommend performing panendoscopy with random biopsies. It's a procedure that requires operative intervention with expense without giving us a whole lot of information. And then finally, we have this patient with a, with a cystic metastasis to their neck that we think is involved with, with squamous cell carcinoma metastatic from the oropharynx by fine needle aspiration biopsy. How do we go about determining where the primary is? Um, the most modern and effective way to do this is with a directed biopsy of the likely primary sites. Uh, so for us, that's that's surgical exploration, hopefully at the time of definitive treatment, giving us the ability to perform either a guided ipsilateral lingual tonsillectomy, if we think the primary is there by palpation and physical examination or imaging, or an ipsilateral tonsillectomy as a starting point, moving forward then based on our frozen section pathology guidance to we found the primary or we haven't found the primary yet migrating across the lingual tonsil on the ipsilateral side and potentially the lingual tonsil on the contralateral side looking for that primary tumor. You know, one question that we often get from patients that come to clinic is, you know, I yeah, I know I need to get these imaging studies and I need to get uh, biopsies, but what new things are out there? What minimally invasive things can we use to diagnose this cancer, especially since it's a viral-associated cancer? Dr. Ma, I know this is a particular area of interest for you, but are there any biomarkers that we can use right now to diagnose HPV-associated oropharynx cancer? Sure. Let's talk about traditional markers for HPV-associated disease and things that might be coming down the line in the future. The most commonly used way to diagnose HPV-associated oropharyngeal squamous cell carcinoma is based upon those downstream effects of HPV, E6 and E7 that we discussed before for P16 positivity. So the P16 immunostain is often used as a surrogate marker for high-risk HPV. It's considered positive when it's expressed in 70% or greater of tumor cells in both nuclear and cytoplasmic staining. Occasionally, you'll have these tumors that have focal or patchy P16 positivity, uh, and those are somewhat difficult to interpret, but it's the greater than 70% that's important. There, there's two issues with this. The first issue is P16 can be positive in tumor types outside of oral pharyngeal squamous cell carcinoma. It could be present in lymph node metastases from cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas, for example. Uh, 
The second issue is what Dr. Moore was talking about in that many of these nodes present as cystic lymph nodes. We want to make sure that we're biopsying the wall of those lymph nodes to get as much tumor cells as we can. But when you have a positivity rate that's being defined as a percentage of cells, and the majority of your sample is cystic fluid, even with your best attempts to just try to get the, the lymph node wall. It can be difficult at times to use P16 to define. There's tricks that you can use in pathology. Our pathologists will spin down the sample and try to get a block based upon that. But HPV-specific testing is available as well. The gold standard is HPV in situ hybridization. There's other things that could be done as well. Right now, there are circulating markers that can be used to try to find HPV-associated disease. For example, circulating tumor DNA from HPV-16 is commercially available in a couple of different venues, and that has been shown to be fairly sensitive for detecting HPV-associated squamous cell carcinomas. There are E6, E7 antibodies that are being tested as well to see if they have association with squamous cell carcinomas. Definitely, they've been associated with HPV exposure, uh, and I think the data is emerging upon their role for a diagnostic purpose. Dr. Price, my next few questions uh, are for you. We talked about a CT with IV contrast as the best initial study to get for a neck mass when there's a suspicion of oropharynx cancer. Once it's been diagnosed, what other imaging studies, if any, would you get to stage this disease? So it's important to um, have a good understanding of the disease in the head and neck, um, which is why we get high-resolution cross-sectional imaging with CT scan. But you also want to assess for any evidence of distant metastases. And there's a couple ways to do this. We typically will get a PET CT scan, which can help give us a good idea of whether there are any metastases outside the head and neck, and thus would potentially change our treatment course. PET CT scans can also be helpful um, in the situation of an unknown primary. But if PET CT is not uh, possible or not covered, it's also okay to get a good um, CT scan of the chest or chest, abdomen, and pelvis to assess for distant disease. And how is oropharynx cancer staged according to AJCC criteria? So AJCC has been updated now in the eighth edition, and there were significant changes for oropharyngeal cancer staging. So the staging is now different for HPV positive versus HPV negative. Um, as many know, the TNM staging system is used. So T refers to features of the primary tumor. For T staging, it's the same still for HPV positive and negative tumors. And in the head and neck, it's predominantly based on size, with T1 tumors being less than two centimeters, T2 uh, ranging from two to four, T3 greater than four, or for oropharyngeal cancer with extension to the lingual surface of the epiglottis. And T4 tumors are tumors that are more locally advanced, so typically extending into adjacent structures, um, such as the base of tongue um, or the pterygoids, for example. The nodal staging is really where the staging system um, starts to differ for HPV positive and negative. The clinical staging for HPV positive uh, disease 
uh, for the lymph nodes is simplified now uh, with N1 disease being ipsilateral lymph nodes less than six centimeters and two contralateral lymph nodes and N3 uh, metastases greater than six centimeters. There's no longer um, all of the subtypes like N2A, N2B, N2C, which we would see with HPV negative disease. And important to note is um, the change for pathologic nodal staging for HPV or pharynx cancer, which has also been simplified to N1 disease, which is lymph node involvement less than four lymph nodes and N2 greater than four lymph nodes. And this is significant because we know that the risk of recurrence increases uh, quite dramatically when you have more than four lymph nodes involved in the neck. And an example of how the staging really changed things in AJCC 7th edition, for example, if you had a patient with HPV oropharynx cancer with a T1 tumor and three ipsilateral lymph nodes, that previously would have been staged as 4A, but now is stage 1, reflecting the improved prognosis. And then finally, the M staging just uh, relates to the presence or absence of distant metastases. And it's quite rare for us to find distant metastases at diagnosis for HPV oropharynx cancer cancer, but that does occur in about 1% to 2% of patients. I think this is a good segue into talking about the treatment for this disease. So if a patient were to be diagnosed with oral pharynx cancer, and if they didn't receive any treatment at all, what is the natural course of this disease? Is it aggressive? Is the life expectancy short? Or how does it behave? So HPV or pharynx cancer is quite an interesting disease, and we will commonly see patients who present to clinic and will tell us that they've had a neck mass for years, um, and it hasn't really changed. So it does tend to be more indolent compared to HPV-negative head and neck cancer. If left untreated, eventually HPV or pharynx cancer will continue to progress, and uh, there will be an increased risk of uh, developing distant metastatic disease. So these are life-threatening cancers that eventually can shorten somebody's life, but they really can exist for quite a long time. We don't know exactly why that is, but we suspect that it's related to the host immune system that does a good job at controlling this tumor for quite a long time. I think what's interesting is if we look in the recurrent metastatic setting. So for HPV-negative tumors, the average survival of patients, even with chemotherapy, is less than a year. Whereas for HPV or pharynx cancer, patients are routinely living for many years in the face of incurable disease. So it is a much more indolent cancer, but still life-threatening and still requires treatment. Yeah, I think that's interesting because as a medical uh, oncologist, you know, I often hear uh, you tell patients that if cancer has metastasized, it's typically not curable. Is that necessarily true for HPV-positive cancers? And generally, what are the cure rates and what is the prognosis like for this disease with treatment? So if, if the cancer spread outside of the head and neck, most of the time that is still considered incurable disease, but patients can live with it for quite a long time. Now, we do treat metastatic disease a bit more aggressively for HPV or pharynx cancer because there, there's a small cohort of patients that we have been able to essentially cure of their metastatic disease if they have limited disease. For example, metastatic disease only in lymph nodes in the mediastinum, or they develop one metastasis in the lung. So 
that's often hard to counsel people up front because you can't predict what happens in the future. But we do have a cohort of patients that we've, for example, resected a lung metastasis or treated them with radiation and chemotherapy to the mediastinum, and they've gone on to not develop further recurrences. But there is quite a bit of variability even in the face of of metastatic disease. So it's still true that we consider it incurable if it's spread outside the head and neck, but you really have to look at each patient and their disease as an individual. And because these patients are often younger and can tolerate more aggressive treatment, we do typically uh, treat in ways that we wouldn't with most of the HPV negative oropharynx cancer. Most patients with HPV oropharynx cancer will be cured of their disease, but you know, up to 20% will develop a recurrence over time. And unlike the HPV negative cancers, we really do worry quite a bit about distant metastases over time versus local regional control, which was always really the, the critical um, issue with HPV negative oropharynx cancer. Dr. Moore, what's considered the standard of care treatment for this type of cancer? Linda, the modalities of treatment of head and neck cancer, including chemotherapy, radiation therapy, and surgical therapy, really come into play with oropharynx cancer because of all the tumors we treat, it has the most robust discussions surrounding it, and possibilities surrounding it of multimodality treatment. So of all the tumors we treat, Dr. Ma and Dr. Price and I and our colleagues have probably the most collaborative relationship around oropharyngeal cancer for this region. Early oropharyngeal cancer uh, responds very well to a number of modalities. So surgery alone in some circumstances and radiation alone in some circumstances can be used very effectively for early stage disease that does not have numerous or bulky metastases and is not bulky or deeply invasive at the primary site. For disease that involves more metastatic spread or has more invasive primary component to it, then the two main options for treatment are primary combined chemoradiation therapy, which is classically delivered in the form of concurrent cisplatinum with 70 gray of radiotherapy, or primary surgical resection of the primary site and the metastatic neck disease, followed by adjuvant radiation therapy or chemoradiation therapy. But one of the most impactful and interesting facets surrounding the treatment of this disease has been deintensification therapy. And that can take place in many modifications of the forms of classically delivered surgery and radiation and chemotherapy. So in the surgical setting, more minimally invasive transoral resection and more selective techniques in the neck are being employed. In the radiation component of therapy, more focused and more targeted and lesser intense delivery of radiation therapy is paying big dividends in not only helping cure disease, but deliver more conservative side effects. And finally, modifications of the chemotherapy in conjunction with these modalities of treatment is helping us de-intensify a lot of the effects of our treatment. Say a patient chooses a primary surgical resection as their treatment. What are some important principles that you have to consider before you take a patient to the operating room for resection of oropharyngeal cancer? The hallmark of surgical treatment of oropharyngeal carcinoma, like the hallmark of treatment of many other head and neck cancers, is complete 
margin clearing resection of the primary disease. So one of the first facets is, can you completely remove that disease and ensure a margin clearing resection? If you can't answer that question in the affirmative, then you really have to consider whether there's value to any surgical therapy. Because if you leave a patient with a 99 or 95 or 90% resected tumor and residual disease at the primary site, you really haven't helped modify any of their treatment plan in the form of radiation therapy and chemotherapy. So you you could consider that you really haven't made any big progress besides just a definitive biopsy of that disease. If we think that we can completely surgically eradicate the primary site disease and the lymph node metastasis, then we think that we add a component that's useful to the therapy. How we go about that has changed a lot over the years. Most oropharyngeal cancer surgery today is accomplished via the transoral route. And the transoral route differs from uh, from previous modalities of surgical therapy in that it avoids uh, large open resection, sometimes involving the jaw or, or a large incision into the pharynx, which is hard to recover from and takes a prolonged recovery. That transoral route is usually through the form of either transoral robotic surgery or transoral laser microsurgery, or sometimes transoral surgery, which is conventional surgical modalities such as cautery excision alone. I don't think it makes a huge amount of difference which one of those you employ. The key thing is that you're performing it through a minimally invasive route and taking advantage of the more rapid recovery of those patients and still achieving a margin negative resection. Candidacy for transoral surgery takes into account a lot of different components of evaluation. The things that can make it more or less easy to perform a complete transoral resection are the mouth opening of the patient, whether or not they have trismus, the state of their dentition, whether they have retrognathia and retruded mandible that makes it more difficult to access the oropharynx through a transoral route, their body habitus, their neck extension, a whole bunch of factors come into play in assessing the patient as a candidate for transoral surgery. And then finally, there are some pretty strict contraindications to transoral surgery. These include the extent of neck disease. If the neck disease is contiguous with the oropharynx disease, then it's not likely going to be a meaningful transoral resection with a margin clearing resection, and you may want to approach that patient in another manner. If there's medialization of the retropharyngeal carotid artery, you have to be careful with the transoral approach and, and carefully study the radiographs and make sure that you understand that anatomy and that you're going to be able to preserve and protect that carotid artery during your transoral approach and your tumor removal. If there's going to be exposure of the great vessels, particularly the carotid artery, transorally because of the lateral extent of the tumor and the parapharyngeal extent, that's important to recognize, and you have to have a plan in place of how you're going to protect that carotid artery during the healing period. And if the tumor encases the carotid artery, that's largely going to be an unresectable tumor from a transoral approach. In an experienced hands, you can combine some other approaches to the transoral approach to address large primary tumors. And this might include transhyoid pharyngotomy, still occasionally for very large bulky tumors, particularly in the salvage setting, we might consider mandibular split to access that tumor. But most mandibulotomies for oropharynx tumors have fallen out of favor because we have better modalities at our disposal now. 
And then finally, one of the things I want to point out is that for a number of reasons, performing treatment of the neck disease at the time of the transoral resection of the, of the tumor is advantageous. For one, we don't want to be taking the patient to the operating room for multiple anesthetics. This drives up the complexity of treatment and it drives up the cost of treatment. So in our hands, if we can, we'll perform neck dissection simultaneously with eradication of the primary tumor during the surgical approach. And it also gives us the ability to access the vessels uh, to the oropharynx. It's been demonstrated in a lot of safety studies that if we manage this vasculature, particularly the external carotid artery branches of the facial artery, the lingual artery, and sometimes the superior laryngeal artery, and we control those at the time of the primary site resection, we can greatly cut down on our catastrophic uh, bleeding rate in the postoperative period and improve the safety of the operation. Dr. Ma, let's talk about radiation therapy now. I want to talk a little bit later on about de-escalation. Uh, this is one of, I know, all of our favorite topics. But tell me first, what is, you know, in the standard of care setting, how is radiation delivered in the treatment of oropharyngeal cancer? So I know, Dr. Yen, that you have a Principles of Radiation Therapy podcast already available, so I won't go into too many of the nitty-gritty details. Uh, suffice it to say that radiation therapy, modern radiation therapy techniques now, are significantly improved from radiation therapy techniques that we had two decades ago, for example. We have, with x-rays, much more focused treatment that help avoid normal tissue exposure using something called IMRT or something called VMAT. We also have proton beam therapy that focuses the radiation and kind of has very little exit dose, which helps us even more precisely deliver radiation therapy to areas we want it to go while avoiding radiation to normal structures. Proton therapy is available at select centers throughout the United States. What we call dosimetric or dose to normal tissue advantage from using protons is undeniable. Whether that translates into long-term benefits and normal tissue effects is currently under study. For the principles of radiation therapy, it usually involves daily radiation therapy Monday through Friday over a course of several weeks. When we're giving radiation therapy as the primary therapy, it's generally daily treatment Monday through Friday for seven weeks. When we give radiation therapy to clean up disease after surgery, for example, what we call the adjuvant setting. It's standardly radiation therapy daily, Monday through Friday for six weeks. We give adjuvant radiation mostly for microscopic residual disease in the settings of specific risk factors. Those could be intermediate risk factors, such as more than one lymph node or a big lymph node or a larger tumor, things such as lymph vascular space invasion and perineal invasion. And there's other high-risk factors where we give radiation therapy and chemotherapy that I know Dr. Price will talk about later. Generally, this is mostly about positive margins and extranodal extension, with, in our practice, extranodal extension being the primary factor for driving a high-risk factor after surgery. I just want to say that I think de-escalation in oropharyngeal cancer is such a huge topic right now that we probably should plan to discuss this in detail in a future podcast. But can you give us just a really quick rundown of what we're doing right now for radiotherapy, de-escalation, and oropharynx, and maybe some of the big trials to pay attention to? 
Sure. So let's talk about the driving motivation for de-escalation first. Like Dr. Price was talking about earlier, uh, these are uh, eminently curable cancers with standard treatment. These are patients that tend to be younger and tend to be healthier because they have fewer smoking uh, histories. And these are patients that we expect to live a long time with the side effects that they obtain from treatment. So the question with de-escalation is, can we preserve patients' quality of life while also preserving their long-term disease control. This could be done in three settings. You can de-escalate primary chemo radiation therapy given definitively, meaning without surgery. Uh, trials such as HN002, that was a large cooperative group trial, or trials such as the ones being run by UNC and the University of Florida looked at taking that seven weeks of radiation therapy and dropping it down to six weeks of radiation therapy, 70 gray versus 60 gray. You also have trials that utilize what we call induction chemotherapy, cycles of chemotherapy given before radiation treatment to try to select patients that might best get lower doses of radiation. That was done through the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group, for example, and several other institutions have explored this as well. In the adjuvant de-escalation setting, so after surgery, the large trial has been ECOG 3311 that looked at for intermediate risk patients going down from 60 gray to 50 gray. And another large experience has been our own here at Mayo Clinic where we did a phase two looking at going from 60 gray to 30 gray. We've recently completed our phase three looking at this as well. And we should have uh, data to present on that shortly. What type of patients in general do you think can be de-escalated? Who are good candidates and who are not? The risk factors to look at de-escalation is something that is an evolving process. It's likely going to be biologically driven, ultimately, rather than something that's anatomically driven. We have surrogates for biologic risk factors right now, but what we really need are clear biologic factors from HPV looking at radio resistance and radiosensitivity, for example. But from our experience, looking at patients who have larger tumors, who have T3, T4 tumors, for example, endophytic tumors that are digging more into the underlying strata, patients do have large number of lymph nodes, five or greater lymph nodes. These patients are considered higher risk in multiple clinical trials as well, and uh, de-escalation is probably not the best course for them. Dr. Price, can you share with us now how chemotherapy factors into the treatment of oropharynx cancer? And tell us specifically in the primary chemoradiation setting, in the adjuvant setting, and in the recurrent metastatic setting. So chemotherapy is an important treatment in combination with uh, radiation therapy and surgery in a number of situations, as you mentioned. So um, when we see patients together, I commonly tell patients that the main backbone of curative intent treatment is surgery and radiation, and then we incorporate chemotherapy to increase our chances of cure. So if we look at the curative intent setting and looking first at definitive chemoradiation, so non-surgical treatment using seven weeks of radiation with chemotherapy, the standard of care is to do cisplatin chemotherapy with radiation. Phase one data is available 
for high-dose cisplatin, which would still probably be the correct answer in most situations for definitive treatment. For HPV or pharynx cancer in patients who are fit, we typically will still use high-dose cisplatin for definitive treatment for two cycles, but weekly cisplatin, 40 milligrams per meter squared, is also widely used. And we don't yet have good head-to-head randomized data comparing high-dose to weekly. So I think the bottom line is that cisplatin is really the key chemotherapy along with radiation for definitive treatment. We do have data, RTOG 1016, so this was a randomized phase three study that attempted to de-escalate treatment by substituting a less toxic systemic agent, cetuximab, for cisplatin in HPV or pharynx cancer. And unfortunately, the outcomes were inferior with cetuximab and radiation, so that has fallen out of favor for the treatment of HPV or pharynx cancer. In patients who can't get cisplatin, so this might be somebody who has renal insufficiency, we do sometimes substitute other things such as weekly carboplatin and paclitaxel, for example, but really all of the high-level evidence is still with cisplatin. So for definitive chemoradiation, we have cisplatin and radiation for seven weeks, either high dose for two cycles or weekly. In the adjuvant setting, there's two specific indications for adding uh, chemotherapy. That would be positive margins or extranodal extension. And as Dr. Ma mentioned, we rarely will see positive margins in our practice. It's it's largely the extranodal extension that will require patients to be considered for chemotherapy. The agent, again, is cisplatin. We really don't have an alternative at this point other than that, although there are some ongoing trials that may change that in the future. In terms of recurrent metastatic disease, certainly chemotherapy is one of the the major tools that we have uh, for palliative treatment. The new standard of care for recurrent metastatic disease is platinum-based chemotherapy along with immunotherapy, pembrolizumab. Um, And that was shown recently to be superior to the previous standard of care, which was platinum-based chemotherapy with cetuximab. Immunotherapy uh, we use commonly as well alone in patients who have strong PDL1 positive staining, or we can use immunotherapy after platinum-based chemotherapy in the second-line setting. So I think the the main message is that cisplatin uh, still remains our tried-and-true chemotherapy, but there are ongoing studies, and this may be changing in the future. I want to take a minute to talk about some of the um, consequences of treatment. Dr. Ma, not to pick on you um, or say that radiotherapy is responsible, (laughs) but could you tell us a little bit about the long-term effects of treatment and, again, in particular, radiation therapy, and what kind of surveillance is required for these patients after the completion of treatment? No, I think that's a fair statement. I think there are substantial radiation side effects after surgery that should be discussed, First of which is to the salivary glands, the parotid and the submandibular glands, for example. Patients often have dry mouth, xerostomia, uh, after radiation treatment. Some of it is recoverable after treatment, but there is often a baseline level of xerostomia that persists afterwards. Because of this xerostomia, patients are more predisposed to have dental issues afterwards. This is particularly problematic because any dental extraction that's required after radiation happens in the setting of a previous irradiated mandible, which means that the blood flow to that region might be less, which might increase the complication rate. So adequate and very diligent dental care is required after treatment. 
radiation therapy can cause fibrosis, both in the neck muscles, but also in the muscles of swallowing, leading to issues with strictures and with food getting caught in the throat later on. So even though we have excellent treatments that can cure patients of their cancer, it's still very important for us to think of ways that we can reduce the long-term side effects for these patients. What kind of surveillance do you perform after treatment? So the, the most likely time course for patients to fail local regionally is within the first two years of treatment. And within those first two years, most likely within the first year of treatment. So patients typically here are seen every three months, every three to four months for the first two years. And then we start spacing patients out. We can see patients every six months afterwards. And what usually when we reach year three, we start seeing patients back on an annual basis. The issue of surveillance imaging is somewhat controversial. There are some recommendations that say that surveillance imaging should not be regularly obtained because many patients who present with local regional disease would present with clinical symptoms as well. And in the instance of presenting with distant disease, well, they're presenting with distant disease. What's the point of catching it early? We have some data that we've uh, presented before showing that early intervention in patients with distance disease, for example, does improve their uh, length of survival in the very least. And some patients seem to have, you know, it, it's like Dr. Price says, we never want to use the phrase cure with metastatic disease, but extended periods of durable control. So we typically get surveillance imaging either in our preferred setting, the PET-CT at three months, one year, and two years after treatment, or a CT neck and chest and abdomen if available for the patient from insurance reasons. Other things that need to be looked at from survivorship, thyroid function needs to be examined after neck radiation treatment, usually through TSH. Dental care, like I talked about before, and uh, long-term functional evaluations as well for swallowing and dry mouth. All right. Last question here, and I want to end on a positive note. So we talked all about how to diagnose, how to manage this disease. Dr. Price, tell me, is this disease preventable? I'm so glad you asked that um, because it is critically important for the general population to know that this is a preventable disease. So there is the HPV vaccine that is available. It covers nine strains of HPV, including the high-risk uh, strains HPV 1618, which cause the majority of oropharyngeal cancers. These vaccines are now available and can be given starting at the age of nine and are now approved actually all the way through age 45. It's better to give these vaccines prior to any sexual activity so that the immune system is primed and ready when the individual is exposed to the virus. Over 120 million doses of the HPV vaccine have been given and is extremely safe. The risk of side effects is exceptionally low. So it is a preventable cancer, um, and I think part of the problem is the uptake of the HPV uh, vaccine has not been as good as it should be, particularly in this country for a variety of reasons. In our practice, it's hard because we're seeing sort of the end effect of it. So we don't have a lot of access to the populations that really need to be educated and vaccinated. But I know we do our best in clinic to really tell our patients if they have children, grandchildren, neighbor children, to be an advocate for the vaccine because this is a preventable disease. 
All right. Thank you for that PSA. I agree. I think it's super important uh, to vaccinate as young as possible and as widely as possible. Okay. I want to thank uh, all three of you for being here. Thank you for answering all of my questions and for educating the audience. I truly appreciate you spending your time with me here. Does anyone have anything else to add or any last comments? Dr. Yen, I, I would only point out that this is such an evolving process and there's so still many things for us to offer in a multidisciplinary fashion to help with the care of our patients with oropharyngeal cancer. So I, I can't appreciate enough the, the cooperation that we've had in our group with my colleagues. And, and I think with that kind of cooperation, uh, we're going to make some big strides here uh, in the next five years with recommending a very effective treatment to our patients. And hopefully, as Dr. Price mentioned in the future, have this disease uh, evolve out of our practice. Thanks. And Dr. Ma and Dr. Price, again, thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. It was our pleasure. Thank you so much, Dr. Yen. Okay, we're going to move on to the summary section now. I'll be giving some key points from the talk for the listeners to try to remember. HPV-associated oral pharyngeal cancer is a disease that can present with really some nonspecific symptoms. The most common presenting symptom is a lateral neck mass that's often asymptomatic and non-tender for the patient. You can have symptoms at the primary site, including some sore throat or even dysphagia, but this is less common than the neck mass. This means that the majority of patients that present with HPV-positive oropharyngeal cancer will have regional nodal metastasis at the time of presentation. However, distant metastasis is quite rare in this disease. Oftentimes, the primary lesion in the oropharynx is not obvious, and a careful examination is needed to find it. This includes palpation of the base of tongue and a careful exam with flexible laryngoscopy to look for any areas of friability. HPV cancer is a cancer that is on the rise and, in fact, has overtaken cervical cancer to become the most common type of HPV-related cancer in the United States. And it's important to understand that the human papillomavirus is a sexually transmitted disease, but it is ubiquitous, meaning that most patients are exposed to it by the time they reach adulthood. Only a small percentage of people go on to develop a chronic infection and then ultimately this type of cancer, and it's not known why exactly this is the case. But it's thought that this rising trend in HPV-positive cancers is likely related to differences in sexual practices that developed several decades ago. This brings up the point that although most patients are exposed to the HPV virus shortly after sexual debut, there's a latency period during which the virus either causes a chronic infection or it remains dormant before it finally undergoes the processes required for carcinogenesis. The risk factors for getting an oropharynx cancer these days are overwhelmingly related to HPV, which mainly are related to sexual behaviors and risk factors uh, for HPV transmission. Traditional risk factors for head and neck cancers, such as smoking and heavy alcohol use, are not as common in the HPV-positive oropharyngeal cancer population. It's important to understand that there are multiple types of the HPV virus. It's typically thought of that the high-risk types are the ones to cause oropharyngeal cancer as well as other HPV-related malignancies. In the oropharynx, the most common HPV type that is found uh, to cause cancer will be HPV-16. The best workup algorithm for a patient suspected of having an HPV-related oropharynx cancer would be a CT scan with IV contrast to investigate for any obvious primary site lesions and as, uh, as well as investigate neck lymphadenopathy. 
The best way to obtain a pathologic diagnosis by far will be an ultrasound-guided FNA biopsy of the neck mass. If there is no obvious neck mass and biopsy of the primary site is possible, this can be sometimes done in the office setting. It's important also to recognize that the staging system for HPV oropharynx cancers differs from staging for other head and neck cancers. As most of the patients present with nodal disease, the classification system for nodal staging in HPV-positive cancers is simplified to either just ipsilateral or contralateral nodal disease on clinical exam. In terms of prognosis, HPV-related oropharyngeal cancer has a very high cure rate. In fact, most patients are cured of their disease. However, about up to 20% of patients may present with recurrence. It's important to know, though, that recurrence is manageable in this disease. And although distant metastasis may not technically be curable disease, it can be managed and patients still can have a prolonged life uh, despite distant metastasis. The standard of care treatment for HPV-related oropharynx cancer can either be primary chemoradiation therapy. This is 70 grays of radiation delivered over seven weeks with concurrent, most often weekly, cisplatin. Or it can be upfront surgery followed by adjuvant radiation therapy or even chemotherapy, depending on the pathology features of surgery. The goals of surgery should always be negative margin resection, and surgery these days is most often done through transoral approaches, such as transoral robotic surgery or transoral laser microsurgery. When transoral resection is performed, neck dissection should be performed concurrently if possible, both for resection of the nodal disease and for pathologic diagnosis, and also to ligate any potential branches of the external carotid that feed into the intraoral tumor area to prevent any catastrophic bleeding afterwards. HPV-positive oropharynx cancer is a disease that is evolving, and our, or I should say our understanding of it is evolving, and there are a lot of changes on the horizon. Exciting new directions include biomarkers that can be used for screening, for diagnosis, and for surveillance, as well as trials and de-escalation therapy so that we can best understand how to deliver patients the most effective therapy that causes the least long-term functional morbidity. Okay, let's move on to the question and answer session now. This session, I'll be giving some high-yield questions, followed by a brief pause and then the answer. In HPV-positive oropharynx cancer with a clinically unknown primary, meaning that the primary is not obviously found, after surgical exploration, where is the most common site for that unknown primary to occur? The most common site to find an unknown primary in the operating room after a clinically negative exam is going to be at the glossal tonsillar sulcus, which is really the base of tongue as it meets the inferior pole of the palatine tonsil. What is the demographic of the most typical patient with HPV-positive oropharynx cancer? The typical patient that's presenting with an HPV-positive oropharynx cancer will be typically a healthy, middle-aged man with few other comorbidities, and typically somebody that doesn't have a strong smoking or alcohol use history. However, it's important to note that women can also get this disease, and we are seeing also a rising trend in the average age of folks diagnosed with this disease. Elderly people can also indeed get this disease. 
what are the oncogenes that are involved in oncogenesis of an HPV-positive oropharynx cancer? HPV has two main oncogenes, E6 and E7, and these are expressed in high amounts in HPV-positive cancers and can cause downstream effects that allow a cell to exhibit uh, malignant behavior. So, in fact, P16, one of the most common biomarkers used in HPV-related oropharynx cancers, is actually uh, a downstream protein that is upregulated after E7 expression in HPV-positive cancers. What is the best chemotherapy drug that can be used in the primary and adjuvant setting for HPV-positive oropharynx cancer. The best drug for chemotherapy in both the primary and adjuvant setting has been shown to be cisplatin. Cisplatin is a platinum chemotherapy agent. In trials, it has been shown to be superior to cetuximab. In cases of patients that cannot tolerate cisplatin due to renal insufficiency, there are alternatives, but cisplatin remains uh, the standard of care treatment in the primary and adjuvant setting. That's our show. Thanks for listening to Headmare's ENT in a Nutshell. Come back soon for another episode.